0: Head to netsuite.com/slash/briefing now for their one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Hey everyone, I'm David Chalian, CNN's political director, and welcome to the CNN Political Briefing. It's been a big week in American politics. Tuesday was Election Day, and Democrats won big in states like Ohio, Virginia, and Kentucky, all places where abortion rights were either at stake on the ballot or central to the conversation.
1: We had to end the ban. Winning was our only option, and we did it together.
0: And Wednesday was the third Republican primary debate down in Miami. Everybody wants to talk about President Trump. I can tell you that I think he was the right president at the right time. I don't think he's the right president now. I also want to close with one message to the Democrat Party. End this farce that Joe Biden is going
1: to be your nominee. I'm 100% pro-life. I would certainly, as President of the United States, have a 15-week national limit. What we saw last night, I'm sick of
0: Republicans losing. That's two big stops on the road to 2024. So today, we're jumping straight into some post-game analysis with Dan Balls, chief correspondent at The Washington Post, covering national politics. Dan, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it.
1: David, happy to be with you.
0: So let's start since we had voters actually voting this week, which to me is my favorite <laughs> exercise in our business of covering politics. What were your big takeaways from Tuesday night? Obviously, the Democrats, the pro-abortion rights movement had a big night. But how do you fit those results into the larger context of where we are politically?
1: Well, I think I think they were a reminder that polls and voters are not one and the same. And at this stage in elections and particularly in the environment that we're in, there is a kind of an obsession with polls and the polls have not looked very good for President Biden heading into 2024. But what we saw again, I think on Tuesday night was what we saw in 2022, which was that Democrats have found ways to outperform expectations, that they have found ways to get their people out, they have found issues that resonate with voters, uh, and that when that happens, the the landscape looks somewhat different. I don't think that what happened on Tuesday, in any significant way, reduces the concern that Democrats have about a Biden-Trump general election. I think that you know I think that people are understandably worried and legitimately worried. <laughs> But what those results showed is that the that the Republicans have their own problems and that there are a lot of voters who are voting against what they see as an extreme Republican Party and they're willing to, to overlook some concerns that they might have with Democrats. So, you know, the one one number that, you know, we all look at constantly is the right direction, wrong track. And, you know, it's somewhere in the high sixties to seventies saying we're going in the wrong direction. And I think what Tuesday was a reminder of is that that doesn't mean it's all because of Joe Biden. People think the country's going in the wrong direction for a variety of reasons, and one of them is some of the things that the Republicans have done and continue to do, and one of those big ones is, is Donald Trump himself. So it was just kind of a reality check of, of where we are, that, that it's, it's easy to swing too far in one direction based on a few polls, uh, without looking at what has been the reality of of elections since 2022, including special elections this year, in which the Democrats have done quite well.
0: Yeah, I mean, on the two things that we're discussing here as sort of the Republican Party's problems at the ballot box, one, the Trump MAGA extremism brand that has been rejected by a huge swath of the middle of the electorate, never mind, obviously, uh, all the Democrats, maybe even some Republicans have rejected that version of the Republican Party. That was in place before the Dobbs decision, right? That contributed to the losses for Republicans in 2018, for Donald Trump's own loss in 2020. Then, separately, the Dobbs decision seemed to be like fuel added to that and, and gave a whole different issue life force uh, for Democrats to extend victories that we saw not just Tuesday night, but throughout special elections this year, the midterms last year, I guess I'm trying to figure out from what you're saying. And I understand what you're saying. I think it's a wise point about, yes, people in polls can say the country's going in the wrong direction. And that can also mean they don't like the Trump dominated Republican Party in our politics. No doubt, though, would you not agree that Biden advisors would like to see that wrong direction number come down nonetheless?
1: Well, they would love to see that come down. They would love to see his approval numbers go up. And frankly, they've been telling everybody for, you know, the better part of two years that as people learn more about what the president has done and as they learn more about the specifics of, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure bill or the semiconductor bill or the, you know, or the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which has got a lot of climate spending in it, uh, that people will begin to give him credit. And and he's been out talking about Bidenomics this spring, embraced what was a kind of a pejorative and decided to try to turn it into a positive. None of that's made any real difference. That is and should be a continuing concern on the part of the White House and the reelection team. David, I would add one other element to the, the things that you highlighted about What has caused problems for the Republicans in addition to Trump and all of the chaos surrounding him and the Dobbs decision, which I agree is, you know, it's been the biggest political game changer that we've seen in a long time. The third element is House Republicans and all of the chaos that they have gone through at the beginning of the year. Through parts of the middle of the year, and now specifically this weeks-long effort to find somebody to replace Kevin McCarthy after they, you know, dumped him uh, nine months into his tenure. So there's a lot that the Republicans have thrown out there that would give people pause about what kind of party is this, and what, if anything, should this party be in charge of. And so the Democrats are good at seizing on that. But they've got a lot of other issues that they've got to deal with, principally the reservations about about Biden and his leadership.
0: Well, so that
1: begs my next question, Dan. Two things can be true
0: at once, can they not? That the that the Democratic Party has found electoral success uh, with the contrast with everything you just described about Republicans and with this abortion rights piece of the equation. And uh, that has been proven time and again. And it can also be true that Joe Biden is in a ditch in terms of his standing with the American people, concerns about his age and the ability to do the job, and that one, a great night for Democrats on Tuesday night does not necessarily solve those Joe Biden problems.
1: No, you're you're absolutely right. It, It was, you know, it was fascinating yesterday. There was a poll that came out of California, what used to be the, the field poll that's now done by the Institute of Government Studies at Berkeley, uh, run by the same pollster, Mark Camillo, It shows President Biden's approval rating in California underwater. Now, that's a kind of an astonishing finding. It doesn't mean that Joe Biden will lose California come next November by any means, but uh, it, is, it is an indication of the unhappiness that people have about his leadership. And some of that, as you rightly say, has to do with his age. Some of it has to do with this kind of lack of enthusiasm, I guess I would put it, among parts of the coalition, particularly younger voters and and younger black voters and Latino men, and slice it any way you want to, but various groups that that lack enthusiasm for him and probably are unhappy about him. And then, on top of that, we're we're seeing these divisions that have emerged as a result of the Hamas attacks on Israel on October seventh and and the Israeli counteroffensive and and the conflict that's going on there. And uh, so, there there is a lot that's stirring within the Democratic Party. Part of it is the structural issues that they have uh, of a coalition that's that's kind of in flux and very much has to do with public personal perceptions of the president of the United States. And in your reporting, in
0: terms of the concern Democrats experienced this week when those New York Times-Siena battleground state polls came out and other polls came out, we had a poll at CNN, and there was a sense inside the Democratic Party establishment, if you will... Uh, of real concern ratcheting up. And I just want to know if your reporting suggests that Tuesday's results calmed that down or there's still real concern among Democrats about Joe Biden
1: as the nominee and if that is their best foot forward. I, I would say yes and yes. I mean, I, I, I think the results help to calm things down a bit, but I don't think that in any way, and, and I suspect you agree with this, I don't think in any way it erases the deeper concerns that people have within the party about him you know it's it, it david it's fascinating there are there are so many people just regular people who are absolutely convinced that that president biden will not be leading the ticket for the democrats in 2024 they take it as an article of faith that however it happens he's not going to be the nominee you know everything you and i know from the reporting we've done is that He's determined to be the the nominee and, and likely will be if he doesn't, you know, have a terrible health episode or something that forces him to the sideline. That concern is ongoing and I think will continue to be ongoing until the point at which they have to make a decision about, okay, I'm either going to vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And then we're in a kind of a different equation.
0: Okay, Dan, stay right there. I have a lot more for you, especially with the Republican third debate in the books last night, and we will take a look at their race for the 2024 nomination when we return. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. We're here with The Washington Post's Dan Balls, who knows more about American politics and presidential campaigns than anybody I can think of. So I'm thrilled to have him here with us. Dan, last night, five Republican candidates on the stage in Miami for the third debate. Of course, the dominant frontrunner in the race, Donald Trump, did not appear yet again on the debate stage. So my first question to you is, did the debate matter last night?
1: David, I don't think it mattered much at all. I think the first two debates have had some impact. I think they've obviously helped Nikki Haley, but I don't think last night made much difference at all. Uh, And I think the longer these debates go on without Trump and before we hear from voters uh, early next year, the less impact they're gonna have. David, I think that everybody watching this race, A, recognizes that Trump is gonna be very, very difficult to dislodge from, from winning. But the second is that there are really only two candidates at this point who have any hope of becoming the alternative, and that's that's Nikki Haley and and Governor DeSantis. And a debate like last night does little for either one to be able to demonstrate why it should be him or her versus the opponent. And, and I think that that was the the disappointing aspect of the debate. I mean, there was there was a fair amount of substance in that debate, yeah. um, more than I. Think in the last several debates, and certainly on foreign policy. Yeah, very much on foreign policy, and yep. and extremely hawkish uh, on on some aspects of foreign policy, particularly a lot of saber rattling about Iran and all of that. So that was you know there was there was some value in that, but in terms of of getting to a point where we have a better understanding of who's likely to be the principal opponent to Donald Trump, and whether they will ever get to that point of being one-on-one with him, I don't think last night did much on that front.
0: One argument that we still hear Republican candidates making is that uh, they say Donald Trump can't win the election. And yet, obviously, we've seen all this polling out there that suggests perhaps Donald Trump can win the 2024 election. And that seems to rob the... Trump opponents from like a central uh, talking point, but one that they were still pursuing last night on the debate stage. What do you make of this notion of electability and whether Republican primary voters, especially in those early states of Iowa, New Hampshire, are buying that electability
1: argument? Most of the evidence we see is that they are not buying that argument about either DeSantis or Haley. And and in fact, that the people who are supporting Trump, and that's obviously a significant portion, think that Donald Trump is the most electable. And these polls, as you suggest, these polls reinforce that idea. Um, this was a this was a very good round of polls for Donald Trump. Now, the polls were also very helpful to Nikki Haley, whose those polls show that she did better than Trump against Joe Biden, and then sometimes by a you know a pretty decent margin. So she has she has the ability to say, look, in the long run, I am still more electable than Donald Trump. Um, and one thing we don't know, um, because there always there's always an unknown about this, all the legal entanglements that he's facing, um, if, if he becomes convicted in one of these trials, will that materially change Republican attitudes about whether he will be uh, a strong general election candidate? We may not know anything on that front before most or or many Republican voters will have cast votes in caucuses and primaries. I got an email from a listener,
0: thank you for writing in, Andre. We appreciate it, suggesting that if Republicans picked a more moderate candidate, or perceived moderate candidate, perhaps like Nikki Haley, that they would have a stronger shot of beating Biden. And I just wonder Nikki Haley, you mentioned her success on the debate stage. You mentioned that the polling suggests she has the strongest shot at defeating Biden, perhaps. And yet, I guess my question for you is, does she have enough? Obviously, she doesn't have enough yet vis-a-vis Trump, Dan, but can she put together a coalition that could potentially be a majority of Republican primary voters? I'm having a hard time as I look inside her numbers and seeing who she's appealing to right now, if indeed there's
1: sort of enough fish in the pond she's fishing in. I think that's a very, very good point. She has various attributes uh, as a candidate, but putting together a coalition of that size and scope still seems daunting to me. And frankly, she does not have a simple path simply to become the alternative to Trump, let alone than to put together a coalition that could defeat him. She still has to get by DeSantis in Iowa, right. and there's no guarantee that she's gonna be able to do that. New Hampshire looks pretty good for her if she comes out of Iowa with a head of steam, uh, as does South Carolina, but um, but you know, DeSantis has assets also. I mean, he's, he's had a rough go through much of this year. Um, but he still has some assets to deploy and and got that endorsement from Governor Reynolds in Iowa this week. You and I know that endorsements in these things don't make a huge amount of difference, but that was a big endorsement. So she's got a ways to go, and I I think the other element that she has to worry about is that – Governor DeSantis has had a ton of oppo research dumped on his head over the last nine months. Um, (laughs) He's taken, you know, he's taken a lot of hits and it has it has cost him. She's gone through this with very little of that. And if she gets, you know, if she gets moving and has real momentum, we're going to see more coming at her. And then the question is, how well does she hold up uh, in that? I mean, we, we could see a, a lot of negative advertising aimed at her between now and the Iowa caucuses. And, you know, how, how well does she wear over time, given that kind of environment? Yeah, that's excellent. I mean,
0: when she takes the in-person attacks on the debate stage, she, she, she seems to handle them in stride. But that's a whole different thing than uh, millions of dollars of advertising being uh, dumped on your head. Dan, because you have done this longer and better than anybody else I know, I just want to get a sense from you, how different does this nomination race feel to you from uh, from all others you have covered? It feels dramatically different to me. And I'm just trying to get a sense of how you would describe the difference. A lot of people say, well, it's like there's an incumbent. Yes, but there's not an actual incumbent. And the one that is there is obviously deeply flawed. And so I just want to get your sense of how you would characterize what this nomination race
1: is. David, this is this is a race unlike any that I have covered. There is nothing about this one that kind of conforms to the patterns or the rhythms uh, that we have seen in past elections, and it's a combination of things. Part of it, obviously, is that that in a sense you have you know you have two incumbents, one who's been president, lost the race, but is the dominant figure in his party, and Donald Trump, and the other is is President Biden. Both are flawed. Both have very high negatives. The public doesn't want to see this election people are exhausted with the news and with politics. You know, I wrote a week ago that you look back at all the things that have happened this year, big events. There've been a number of big events that you would think might have some impact on our politics, and yet the race we're looking at, if if it is a Trump-Biden contest, looks very, very similar to what it did at the beginning of the year. There's nothing dramatically Mm -hmm. different. Nothing seems to change. Campaigning doesn't seem to make much difference. Debates make only a marginal difference. You've got all of these distractions. It's a challenge to me to figure out what's the right way to cover this. Is it to spend time in Iowa at this point? Is it to spend time in New Hampshire? Is it to get a far away from the candidates and simply talk to voters to get an understanding of uh, of not just what they think about the president and the former president, but what they think about themselves and what they think about this country and, and what impact the COVID Pandemic has had on their lives and how disruptive that has been. I mean, I just think we're we're in a we're in a period in which there are so many elements that have caused people to have you know anxiety, angst, concerns, uh, and they look around at the leadership that they're being offered and they don't see much there that that is appealing to them. And so, figuring out what this campaign is going to look like and how to cover it, frankly, from from our end is, I think, the biggest challenge I've had uh, as a political reporter.
0: I'm so glad that I am not alone in being perplexed by this in terms of how to go about covering it. I, I couldn't agree more with your sentiment. And it reminds me also. I know i was sort of asking you to find a comparison if there was one to a previous election cycle. But th- that question in and of itself reminds me of one of the greatest lessons in political journalism I've ever received, which is from Dan Balls himself, which is that we as political reporters have to constantly remain open to what is new and different about each election cycle, and and there is something always new and different. I think you have hit on it with this post-pandemic moment and this disengagement uh, from the electorate uh, that is going to be very hard for us to get our arms around uh, because it just doesn't comport with any other kind of traditional presidential campaign that we've seen. So yeah. I thank you for your wisdom, as always.
1: Thank you. It is a big challenge for all of us. And, and, you know, I'm sure you're going through the same kinds of conversations at CNN that we are at The Washington Post about what do we do? How do we do it? How do we make sure we're on top of it? And as you say, how how do we make sure we've got fresh eyes and an ability to remain, you know, pretty humble about what we know and and to be able to say that to the people who read what we write and, you know, listen to what you all say? Dan Balls, thank you so much, sir. Appreciate
0: it. Thank you, David. My pleasure. That's it for this week's edition of the CNN Political Briefing. We'll be back next Friday, November 17th, with a new episode. And we want to hear from you. Is there a question you'd like answered about this election cycle? Is there a guest you really want to hear from? Give us a call at 301-842-8338 or send us an email at CNNPoliticalBriefing at gmail.com. And you might just be featured on a future episode of the podcast. So don't forget to tell us your name, where you're from, how we can reach you, and if you give us permission to use the recording on the podcast. CNN Political Briefing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Madeline Thompson. Our senior producer is Haley Thomas. Dan DeZula is our technical director. And Steve Lichtai is executive producer of CNN Audio. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week.